Come and live the enchanted life where time becomes eternity. And you will become a dreamer and dream untellable dreams. Greetings, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast entitled The Making of Dharmalan. I'm your host, Brian Chittister, and for those not familiar with Dharmalan, it is an album of music composed roughly from 1961 to 63 by Eden Abes, or Eden the writer of the world-famous standard Nature Boy, and recorded by the Swedish Exotica Quintet Ixtahuele, and released in 2021 by the record label Subliminal Sounds. I'm the album's co-producer, and over the next 13 episodes, we'll take you behind the curtain to explain the background of the Dharmaland music, as well as some insights and impressions about the recording sessions, the influences on the album, and some of the many ideas which went into its overall concept. So the basic structure of this podcast will be as such. This is the opening episode, and it'll provide a general background of the album as a whole. The who, what, when, where, why, and if we're lucky, the how. And then the next 12 episodes after that will be devoted to the individual tracks on the album. So in other words, one song will be discussed per subsequent episode. And with that, let's jump right in. So what is Dharmaland exactly? In essence, it's a collection of songs which Abi wrote on sheet music in the immediate aftermath of his 1960 LP on Delphi Records' Eden's Island. He sent these lead sheets off to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. for copyright purposes and then, for whatever reason, left them on the shelf basically unrecorded during his lifetime. So to be sure, most of them were actually recycled for other recording projects and or releases during Abby's lifetime between 1961 and 1995, the latter being the year he died. And in fact, he created many derivative melodies and titles from the songs included on Dharmaland. And yet he never recorded them as they were originally composed. So why was that, you might ask? While we can never know for certain what Abi's reasons were for abandoning the project in the early 60s, we can guess based on a few things we know about his life and music then, including the fact that Eden's Island, upon its initial release in 1960, only sold 100 or so copies. And then his wife Anna, around the same time, also contracted bone cancer and would lose her battle with it ultimately in August 1963. Therefore, we might conjecture, you know, that the period immediately following the release of Eden's Island was one that was filled with personal and professional tragedy and maybe made it difficult for Abby to get another album deal or to devote the kind of energy needed to produce a new album while his wife was terminally ill. What we do know from the existence of these lead sheets from this period is that Abby was still very creatively fertile. 
in terms of how I came to be involved with this work and eventually co-produced Armaland, it began sometime after 2009. I had been introduced to Abby's music as a teenager in 1995 with the reissue of the Eden's Island album on CD. And this was during the exotica, surf, burlesque, rockabilly, swing music revival of the mid to late 90s. And Abby became kind of a cult figure in that time. And there were some covers of songs from Eden's Island, but there wasn't anybody who was really devoting a lot of energy to uncovering what else he did besides Nature Boy and Eden's Island. So I, for whatever reason, undertook that task and collected a lot of singles and recordings by Abby in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s on 45 and 33 and 78 RPM. And in 2009, I pretty much thought that I had seen it all when it came to Abby. And so I started going to the Library of Congress in DC to research what had been written about him. I was going through a lot of old billboard and cashbox magazines, going through old phone books, public records, things that the different departments in the Library of Congress have that you can either order or that can be viewed on microfilm. And I'd probably gone for 40 or so days over a two-year period before I discovered in a copyright room where I learned that Abby actually had a, a file. Um, I was told that it was basically stored off-site in Kentucky. Sometime after that, the Library of Congress called me and said, you know, we have the, the copyright files pulled and uh, you're permitted to view them. So I went back and was ushered into a room by the librarian in the copyright room, given a pair of white gloves, they turned an overhead light on and then plopped this very heavy box down on the table. And I opened it up and inside were 150 or so lead sheets written by Abby by hand and copyrighted between 1955 and 1968. And that greatly expanded my sense of his creativity during his lifetime. I had previously thought that he had written and or recorded 90 or 100 songs and now that number had more than doubled. I recognized some of the titles in there, but most of them were new to me. And then as I was reading through the lyrics and reading the lead sheets, I recognized that there were some common themes, some common melodies and, and lyrical motifs that you know, recurred not only in these songs, but also throughout his larger body of work. And so it was a really exciting time for me. And after that, I went back and started studying them closer. I wrote a chapter of a book called Bohemian Highways, which was just devoted to these lead sheets, the sort of lost works. And the thing that I was most curious about was what he wrote in the immediate aftermath of the Eden's Island album. I'd felt that that album, more than anything else that I had heard by 
this composer was really a masterpiece and an artistic triumph, even if it wasn't a commercial success. And so I was really curious why he would have just dropped off the face of the earth after that, or if he really did, or why he would not have tried to follow that album up with something as equally significant. And so the first thing I did was I put aside 22 lead sheets that he had composed and copyrighted, but not recorded from the years 1960 to 1963. And I started to study those a little bit more closer. And I began, I think in 2014, 2015, actually taking flute lessons with a teacher in New York City named Florencia Gonzalez. And I also started communicating pretty regularly with Michael Cudahy, AKA the millionaire from the band Combustible Edison, a 90s exotica revival band on Sub Pop Records. With the intention of having the millionaire arrange and produce a live show of these songs and possibly an album and the millionaire demoed a few songs, I believe in 2014 or 2015, but Millionaire had gotten pretty sidetracked at that point. He was, had just gotten out of um, getting his masters in music composition and was working on some film soundtracks. So the pieces just never fit for us to continue it. In the meantime, I worked with my flute teacher to either demo some of the songs myself or have her demo them. And from that, I contacted Jim Baki of the Tikiaki Orchestra, another contemporary exotica band, and he demoed two more of the songs, kind of with a little bit more of a flushed out arrangement, albeit on synthesizer. And then around 2017, that kind of fell apart as well because Jim himself is not fluent in reading sheet music and he had other things going on so the project just sort of fell into you know no man's land at that point and then my friend Dominic Priori whom I have co-written and co-published some stuff with in the past and who also had written the original liner notes to Eden's Island the CD in 1995 was in contact with Subliminal Sounds Records and with Ixtahuele and he told them about this project that I had and from there I started talking to Stefan Carey, the owner of Subliminal Sounds, about the project and then he was the one that gave the lead sheets to Ixtahuele and once their interest was piqued we started having regular Skype sessions where we talked about what the direction of the album was going to be and I don't remember when it was, but sometime between fall 2018 and spring 2019, I came up with the idea that we would call it Dharma Land. And the reason why I did this was because I really felt that much of the music was associated with landscape. So there were references in the music to imaginary landscape, and there were references to actual cities or towns or locations in California and so it seemed to me that what the album really represented was sort of California as this place where one could discover 
the Dharma or could awaken to enlightenment. I knew that these ideas were really important to Abhi and I also knew that in the early 60s Jack Kerouac's Dharma Bums was a book that was very successful, not quite as successful or influential as On the Road, but very nearly. And that Abhi in calling himself Dharma Man and then referring to a place called Dharma Land, I knew that he was sort of tapping into that Beat Generation energy. and. So I felt like as kind of a reflection of the Beat era, as something that came out of Eden's Island, which was also an imaginary landscape, and something that really cohered with his personal ideology, his interest and devotion, as he said in many interviews and other songs, his, his devotion to Eastern philosophy and particularly to Buddhism. I really felt like Dharmaland was kind of a surmising title for the songs. At this point, I had whittled it down from 22 lead sheets from that period to 12 songs, the 12 that are now on the album. And I did this basically because there were a number of recurring melodies or themes, either lyrical or musical. And so I felt like these were the most sort of interrelated tracks and that we could basically build a concept or, you know, construct through music an imaginary landscape. And so that was the original concept. And from there, Ixta Huele went about developing arrangements. They demoed, I believe, one or two of the songs. And me on my side, as well as my filmmaking partner, John Weiner, who uh, the two of us are working together on, and a documentary about Abi. We put our heads together and started to sort of conceptualize how to present the album more almost as a kind of audio cinematic experience. And so we made the decision to contact eight or nine of Abi's living collaborators and old friends so that they would have a presence on the album. We found a friend of Abi's who lives up in Tahunga Canyon, above Los Angeles, who had access to one of Abi's original handmade bamboo flutes. So the presence of Abi's own instruments, as well as the presence of people who actually worked with him on the album was another major factor, besides trying to figure out how this suite fit into his larger oeuvre, how the suite you know, sort of functioned as a conceptual piece as a kind of audio landscape, how it fit with his ideas thematically, his interest in Eastern philosophy, his interest in mysticism. So all these things kind of came into the package and Ixta Huele asked me during one of our early Skype sessions before we recorded, what did I think Dharmaland looked like? And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I knew that I know that the underlying concept of it for me was that this was sort of a metaphysical version of California or a liminal space between the physical world and the metaphysical world. Something where through the experience of nature and nature in California and culture in California, one could be transported to kind of a greater state of awakening. And so that really drove a lot of the early decisions in the album 
And then in the summer of 2019, Ixtahuele flew from Sweden to Los Angeles, and I flew from New York City to Los Angeles, and we recorded in Woodland Hills. The idea for the guests came to me from actually listening to Ry Cooter's album Chavez Ravine from 2005, which had a big influence on this in terms of treating Dharmaland something like a documentary audio project where it wasn't necessarily nonfiction, there wasn't narration on it, but by having the presence of people, of artists who grew up in Chavez Ravine and um, became kind of well-known performers, Raikuda was able to tell the story of the neighborhood of Chavez Ravine and its ultimate um, destruction by city council members and you know various commercial and corporate interests through these people that actually were there and witnessed it themselves. And I thought that was a really soulful way of kind of conjuring the past. And so in the same way, like I wanted Abby's old friends and collaborators to add a bit of soul to the project. They knew him, it was personal, and I felt that it would come out in their playing. I also felt the same way about having his own handmade instruments on the album. And I think that was one of the conceptual threads that was very strong throughout it. The other influence on me, besides Eden's Island, in terms of an actual like audio pastiche or musical pastiche of a landscape that sort of toggles back and forth between the imaginary and the real. I was heavily influenced by an album from 1996 by the UK band The High Llamas entitled Hawaii in which the songs on the surface are about this tropical getaway and yet they're filled with all these references to phoniness and constructed reality and so throughout the album the curtain continues to kind of get pulled back and you get to see you know the reality behind the fantasy um, it sort of dispels the illusion while at the same time in dispelling the illusion it actually creates a, a greater sense of possibility and openness and and whatnot so it's almost like you had to go through the fake to get to the real and so in that way like everything from the cover to the font to the whole wider conception of Dharmaland, I wanted it to really be like existing between two worlds. And whether that was metaphysical or actual topographical California, or whether that was just the imagination opening up possibilities. In, in a way, it was almost like a spell was cast. So, you know, Chavez Ravine, Hawaii, Obviously, Eden's Island, I was also influenced by uh, Brian Wilson's Smile, which we'll talk about more later. Abby and Brian met in 1967 at Brian Wilson's Smile Sessions for the, the unreleased Beach Boys album that he was recording that year. And it's a very mysterious picture. No one really knows what, was, what took place between them, if anything significant at all. But yet, I think there's sort of a Venn diagram that people who have carefully studied Abby and Brian Wilson's work, the interest in, you know, mysticism, the use of things like fire and water and, 
you know, some of the references to exotica music, also some of the, the musical references to Western music and kind of like mountain man music, that, that cinematic lush kind of sound that you hear in like the Sons of the Pioneers and things like that. So there was the influence of that. And then Ixtahuele brought a very tight understanding of exotica music itself. Um, and were really devoted to being authentic to that. And they also studied some of the rhythms in particular on Eden's Island and were able to implement those. They would apply some of the rhythms that were present on Eden's Island for songs that were just a little bit different that maybe weren't exotica or, you know, so there, we were all open to experimenting and we weren't trying to necessarily pastiche Eden directly or make, you know, a direct homage, but more to kind of think in that kind of conceptual way that he did. And particularly one thing for me was having a lot of space around the music, space to think, space to dream, and also just that kind of sense of emptiness that is really a core tenet of Buddhism. He wrote a song called Siddhartha in 1967, and he said, when you hear this melody, you will know Siddhartha. And I don't think he was necessarily being messianic or aggrandizing when he said that. He wasn't calling himself Buddha. I think what he was saying was that when you hear my melodies, they have the potential to awaken you to some of what is already there that we just don't recognize it all the time. And, and what is constantly there is this sense, this, this thing that Buddhists call Buddha essence or awareness. And I find that to be very present in Abhi's music. And so that, maybe more than anything, was the major conceptual component or glue that kind of permeated the album, was that whatever was going on in the music, we didn't want to sort of compress it or lock it down too much, but really open it up so that it, it felt very free and, and kind of like the music of a wanderer or like an open desert or an open landscape. So anyway, that's a... That's sort of the long and short of the background of the album and some of the overarching concepts. And so for the next 12 episodes, as I said earlier, I'm going to go through each individual song. So we'll get a little bit deeper into how some of these larger concepts were imbued into the individual arrangements and mixes. So hope you guys will stay tuned and thanks for listening to this one. Mm -hmm.